0: Let's pray together. Father, we welcome the presence of your Holy Spirit, that Christ himself, your Son, would be exalted before our eyes. Thank you for the true and better Adam, who redeems our sin, who calls us to live as sons and daughters of the High King. So we pray that we would uh, understand the Word of God, the Word of your Son Jesus, that is, is unfolded to us this morning. We pray not just to understand it, Lord, but to live by it, to experience healing in life as we follow this brilliant and wonderful teacher, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and have a seat. Good to see you all. We're in our series, uh, Waking Up, Becoming Fully Human. What would it mean for us to mature as... God's sons and daughters, to live the life we were meant to live, to take up the calling that we've received, uh, the birthright that we have uh, as those made alive in Christ, who are spiritual mothers and fathers, um, spiritual giants even. We have no idea, in some cases, the kind of people that we could become if we took Jesus's words to heart. We've talked about all kinds of things in this series. Uh, We've talked about how to grow in self-awareness and how to have a stronger identity. We've talked about um, the the power of the Word of God to be our true guide, our true authority. Um, This week's topic is uh, sexuality. Sexuality. Sexuality is an intense topic, and um, as I was thinking about a a good metaphor for this, um, one of the metaphors that came to mind was just kind of uh, the power of a bonfire on a chilly night. Have you ever experienced the power of a bonfire on a chilly night? That bonfire has the power to warm us up. We're drawn to it instinctively. It's just got this primal pull on us to to come towards it. And so all of us have an instinctive and powerful and primal desire to bond with another human being in a deep way. We have a God-given desire to be loved, a God-given desire to bond. And so sexuality is like that bonfire. It's got the power to warm us up. But it's also got this dangerous side to it. It's got this power to burn us. And so some of us have been like burned by that fire. And we've put our hand in uh, too soon, or someone pushed us in. We didn't even ask for it. And so, even this, this topic itself, we bring scar tissue and burns and pain. And the bonfire is a really uh, intense memory zone for us. Um, so, some of us, you know, we're, we all feel drawn towards the bonfire. Some of us have been burned by the bonfire. And I think a lot of us, you know, we see the bonfire from a distance and we're still in the cold. And uh, maybe either because we've chosen to follow Jesus, we're staying away from it because it's not yet time, Um, or maybe we've been pushed away from the bonfire and so we feel rejected, we feel left out, Um, we feel like we're missing out. Some of us are wondering, is it even worth it to stay away from the bonfire? It's so cold out here in the woods. And so uh, we've got a different kind of hurt, not the hurt that comes from getting burned, but the experience that comes from being left out from the warmth. And um, so how do we relate with the bonfire? How do we relate with this God-given, powerful, beautiful dimension of our humanity, uh, which is our sexuality? So much depends on where we go with this. So much depends on whether we listen to the dominant cultural message or whether we listen to the words of Jesus. Which one is right? Which one has more insight as to what it means to be fully human? And so the way we answer the question of how do we relate with our sexuality, how do we relate with our bonfire, will have a profound impact on the rest of our life. It's a hinge point, it really is. And you can't mix the cultural message and the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't shy away from this topic because he loves us, because he cares about us. He wants us to, uh, to know the fullness of life as it relates to our sexuality. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna identify two temptations that we all experience uh, in our sexuality. And he's going to um, just warn us because these have the power to destroy us from the inside out. These have the power not only to destroy us, but people around us. And then there's an opportunity cost because we miss out on the maturity that we're called to in our sexuality. So, Jesus is going to talk about objectifying other people sexually, um, objectifying, making them an object rather than relating with them as a person, which leads to, out of that comes exploitation. You see that? It starts with objectification, making someone a sexual object. If we're comfortable making people a sexual object, what will come out of that? Well, then we'll start to exploit people sexually. Jesus who has great insight about the human condition, is gonna help us see this flow. Um, It's a rousing call for us to take our hands out of the fire, a rousing call for us from Jesus to take drastic measures even, to to get our hands out of the fire and to stop pulling people into the fire with us. Um, But he does more than that. It's not just a warning. it's um, It's not just preventative care. It's also a healing Touch. Jesus himself brings the presence of Christ. It's a healing presence. It's a hopeful presence. It's one that can renew us from the inside out. Jesus offers us hope for our sexuality no matter how broken we are, no matter how much scar tissue we have. Jesus loves us. He's compassionate towards us. He cares about us. He does not bring condemnation. Um, Jesus, through his celibate life and sacrifice on our behalf, makes us sexually whole and makes us a source of life for others. So, two parts. We're going to listen to Jesus's warnings about uh, sexuality. Jesus, Jesus is teaching it's, it's really wise, it's really insightful, it's really helpful, and we need that. But also, we need to look to Jesus. We don't just need to listen to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus and his healing presence um, for uh, the power that he gives us to live a full human sexual life in Christ um, which will have a life-giving impact on everyone around us. So um, uh, let's turn to Jesus' teaching. We're going to listen to it in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. First thing that Jesus is going to warn us against is he's going to warn us against objectifying people sexually you notice that this isn't just a command. Jesus isn't saying, don't lust after people. A lot of us have tried that, white-knuckled it, done the best we can, and then, you know, fallen on our faces. No, this is more, think of this more as insight into the human condition, insight into what's happening in your heart. Verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, you have heard that it was said, this is kind of a a common teaching tactic of Jesus' day, kind of a rabbinical He's referring to um, an Old Testament teaching. He's referring to specifically what we heard this morning, the seventh commandment, the commandment from Deuteronomy 20, sorry, Exodus 20, not to commit adultery, a command from God. Um, so you've heard that it was said, and a lot of people in Jesus' day were doing, that. they were like, I'm not, doing, I'm not committing adultery, because if they did, it would be way too costly. It would be, they would be ostracized. They would, they would pay enormous social penalties um, for good reason, for committing adultery, All right, but here's what Jesus says after that. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone who looks with lustful intent um, at a woman has already, it's already, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus is revealing something about God here. He's revealing not only what's happening to us in our hearts, but also God's heart. So what's happening in our hearts, it's not the first glance that we look at a woman or at a man, any human being that we're sexually drawn to. It's not that first look where there's a neurochemical instinctive reaction where all of a sudden we notice that they're beautiful. All of a sudden we notice that we're attracted to them. It's not the first look. It's the second look and the third look and the fourth look, and whatever happens after that. It's, uh, the ESV translates it very helpfully here, actually. Looks at a woman with lustful intent. And Jesus is talking to the men. It's a word for both men and women, ultimately, but it starts with men, rightly so, because this is a weak spot for men who are, generally speaking, more visually oriented. Jesus is challenging us. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, meaning that you are taking in with your imagination... The visual experience of this woman's body, and you're holding it in your imagination, and you're you're undressing this woman in your mind and in your heart. This is spiritual adultery. Um, Jesus is noticing that. Jesus is pointing that out. What do we have here? We have a a toxic combination of the seventh commandment, "Don't commit adultery," "Thou shalt not commit adultery," and the tenth commandment, "Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor." It's covetousness and adultery mixing together in a toxic way. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, here's what's going on. And once you give that room, all kinds of other things flow out from that. Am I right? All kinds of awful things flow out from that. Um, so some of you I've shared this illustration with. Um, have you ever noticed how kids love vending machines? Kids love vending machines. They, like, they see a vending machine uh, you know, from a mile away, they run towards it, and they're like, oh my goodness, dad, can I have that? Give I have the mellow yellow? I'm like, I tell my kids, I'm like, all this is is like, it's like sugar and artificial coloring and salt and wheat. That's all, in different combinations, and you're paying 250 for it. So, but there's a vortex of desire between a child's heart and whatever's behind the glass, if only I had those chips, if only I had that candy, if only I had that pop, I'd feel satisfied, I'd feel feel amazing, this is all I want, they set their hearts on it. Have you ever found yourself looking through the glass? If only I had that body to myself, if only I had that body instead of my own body, if only I had access to that person like that, I'd feel satisfied. There's a spiritual vortex that draws us in and it's adultery according to Jesus. You don't have to look through the glass to commit adultery. You can just be looking at work when you're in the loop. You can be looking at the beach at the, when you're traveling for work, at the hotel, at the airport, In the restaurant, in the gym, objectification can happen anywhere, and it always demands more and more and more. Evil and sin and degradation can spring from that place, that toxic spiritual soil of objectification. What comes out of that? Well, actual adultery comes out of that. Do you notice how insightful Jesus is? Literal adultery does not happen just out of the blue. It always is a process, sometimes it is a years-long process of spiritual and mental and imaginative cultivation until we go, you know what, let's do this. Now, there's a greater cost to actual adultery than mental adultery. So even though morally they're on the same plane, the consequences are much worse. But also we see, as we've seen in the Me Too movement, That sexual assault and molestation comes from objectification. Adultery in the heart gives way to awful things happening to vulnerable people. Um, If you're on the receiving end of that objectification, it's dehumanizing, it's infuriating, it's gross. If you're the one objectifying, you objectify yourself too. You treat yourself like an animal, not a human being made in the image of God. So sexual objectification, it degrades us, degrades people around us. That's not how we were made to live. That's not what it looks like to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father, to be a life taker, a life taker objectifying people around us. I'm not saying this to make you feel bad or make you feel guilty, but nevertheless, to bring out the impact of Jesus's warning and his insight. Because Jesus, like a good doctor, wants to root it out. He wants to take it from the, he wants to go to the heart From which, where that toxic soil is, he wants to clean it out with his Holy Spirit. He wants to clean it out with his instruction. So what is he going to do to help us move on from this? He's going to say, get drastic. Now, what you're gonna hear here is shocking rabbinic language, um, which Jesus wasn't afraid to use. I'm not afraid to use shocking rabbinic language, quite frankly. (laughs) Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what's Jesus talking about using this shocking rabbinic language? In some ways, it's kind of putting the question to us, what is it gonna take to remove sexual sin from your life? What's it gonna take? What is it going to take for you to stop committing sexual uh, immorality in your heart or or in your body. Um, It might feel like self-injury, but it's not. It's actually salvation. It's going to get you free. I remember someone in our community several years ago who um, was a habitual pornography user. Another leader in the community challenged this individual and said, you're not just struggling, you have an addiction. You have an addiction. You're using pornography several times a week or every day. That's an addiction. And your first priority needs to be getting free over everything else. That's your number one priority in your life. And this person took that counsel, went to a Sexaholics Anonymous meeting, and never looked back. And they're free today. They emailed uh, us out of the blue and said, that conversation I had with that leader saved my soul. And uh, they're free now. So what is it going to take? Maybe it means confessing for the first time that you are committing adultery in your heart. Um, That has incredible power. You can go to a prayer minister this morning and confess for the first time. It's the first step freedom. But it also looks like, man, what are the avenues of adultery, spiritual adultery in your heart? Now, one pastor talked about the search function on Instagram. He said, nothing good happens in the search function on Instagram. Whether you're objectifying people's bodies because you're comparing your body with it, or maybe you're objectifying people's bodies because of the sexual arousal it can bring you. Um, Are you watching Game of Thrones? I hear about people watching Game of Thrones. I haven't started because I heard it's pornography. Now listen, I know it's art. Art's a little bit different, right? Like we, 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 we have a category for where Christian art, there's, or not Christian art, but art has a way of communicating meaning. We have to be comfortable with it. We have to not be fundamentalist about it, and I get that. But the neurochemical automaticness of your body can't handle all forms of art, can it? So if there are forms of art in your life that you're excusing, you need to cut it out of your life if you want to take Jesus' commands seriously. Maybe you need to dumb your phone down. Maybe you need to take a literal or metaphorical hammer to your iPhone. I'm serious. Maybe you need to have a dumb phone. Right? Right? What's it going to take? Isn't it worth it? This is your soul we're talking about. Jesus talks about, you know, it's better to cut off your eye or your arm than to, than to rumble into hell as a, you know, just a lump. He's talking about Gehenna. There's some nuances to this. And all of us know we're talking about there's, there's two dimensions of hell, is there not? There's, there's, the, there's the ultimate hell where nothing, where everything that won't fit into God's kingdom goes exploitation and greed and uh, degradation, things opposed to God that can't make it into heaven are pushed out so that heaven and earth can be reunited. But there's a hell on earth that prefigures the ultimate hell, am I right? We put our hands in the fire, sexually speaking. We grow addictions and um, we become numb. That's hell on earth, that's hell on earth. Objectification leads to hell on earth, feeling addicted and numb and self-hating What's it going to take to hear Jesus' call? You know, there's a 6.30 p.m. meeting tonight in Edgewater for Sexaholics Anonymous. You could go. Go to chicagosa.org. I'm not kidding. These choices are the hinge points of the rest of our life. So, Jesus warns us against objectifying people sexually. And then he warns us against exploiting people sexually. Exploiting people sexually. Look at verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 24. Um, And Deuteronomy 24, Moses is giving a protection towards women who have been divorced so they won't be exploited more. then he says, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, now, here's one important thing to know. Jesus was speaking into a divorce culture of his day that favored men and exploited women. Here's how it worked. There was a popular teacher um, had a popular kind of, you know, first century podcast of sorts, who <laughs> was like, hey, I have a new interesting interpretation of the Bible here. Deuteronomy 24, the certification, certi- uh, a certificate of divorce. You could give your wife a certificate of divorce for doing something indecent. Well, that's something indecent, what does it mean? It could really mean anything you think it means. You're the man. Now, in context, in Deuteronomy 24, it really, it meant sexual immorality. But this popular you know, rabbinic teacher was like, hey, maybe it means you don't like her cooking anymore. Serious, not, no, no exaggeration. This is not rabbinic shocking language from Aaron. This is, what the te- this is what the rabbinic teacher actually said. And so Jesus was speaking into a divorce culture that favored men. So if you didn't, if your wife burned her bread, you go, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, you give her a certificate of divorce and that makes it legal, okay? So what does that do to the woman in that culture? Well, if you're a divorced woman, you're automatically stigmatized in that culture. And so, and you're financially destitute. You don't have, you have very few ways of, of surviving in that culture. What do you have to do? You have to remarry. Well, when you remarry, you're a second-class citizen to that new husband taking you in, or a relative takes you in. You're a second-class citizen. Or guess what? If nothing happens to you, most li- the most likely way that you're gonna earn money is the oldest profession in the world. Jesus is speaking against this form of exploitation that favored men and their sexual appetites while exploiting women in their vulnerabilities. Jesus, knew, Jesus loved marriage. It's a creation of God. It's not a human construct. It's a God construct that reflects God's image in our bodies. God is not somehow bigger than marriage. God created marriage. And Jesus knew that unless God's intention for marriage was carried out, injustice would ensue. This is challenging, but stick with me. Injustice follows when marriages break down. The most vulnerable people pay the price. Women and children pay the price still in our day when marriages break down. So in this passage, in Matthew 19, other passages, Jesus commends marriage to us in this life, marriage as a bond between a man and a woman. So the authority figures of Jesus' day were fine with divorce as long as it was initiated by the man. If you're a woman in an abusive relationship, you couldn't initiate divorce, but the men could. Jesus says in Matthew 19, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let not man separate. What God has brought together, let not man separate. Men are called to lay down their lives for their wives, for one woman financially laying down your life emotionally laying down your life making yourself bare socially laying down your life sexually physically laying down your life making it exclusive saying no to every other woman in the world except for this woman and I give you myself to you completely um that union is designed if god if if god allows it sometimes it sometimes it's not possible but if god allows it to bring forth children and then those children have a permanent mother and a permanent father that gives them a kind of nurture that is unique and special and important that they carry with them for the rest of their life when that happens society flourishes there has never been a culture in human history where that doesn't happen that it flourishes meaning cultures need marriages to be permanent and life-giving in order to flourish Not everyone is called to that life. But it is the only God ordained place where a sexual union is to take place. When we separate sex from that comprehensive union, according to Jesus, that is a predatory act, even if it's consensual. It is a predatory act, even if it's consensual to initiate sexual behavior with someone. Maybe it's not intercourse, maybe it's just sexual behavior. It's still predatory. It's still predatory. So consider what happens when you separate sex from marriage. The first thing that happens, it's real obvious. We see it in the Harvey Weinstein, etc. cetera, um, just awfulness. It's exploitation. If you separate sex from marriage and that's normalized, exploitation does ensue. It, not just in our culture, in any culture where sex and marriage are separated. People who have financial power get the sex they want. Am I right? In our culture, people who have the financial power get the sex they want with the body they want, with men, with women, with children. And the most vulnerable pay the price. The most vulnerable pay the price. We see it in pornography, we see it in sex trafficking, which by the way, sex trafficking and pornography are intertwined. Pornography use is predatory because of that and other reasons. We see it in workplace harassment, we see it in rape, molestation, and incest and we see it in the silence that covers it all. We see it in the silence even over Christian communities that covers it all. Jesus confronts it in the Sermon on the Mount. You know what, he'd confront it today. So when we separate sex from marriage, exploitation happens, you know what else happens? Heartache, heartache happens. In marriage, sex communicates, I'm yours for life. I give myself completely to you in every way. You take it, you separate it. Outside the marriage bond, what does sex say? Sex says, you may continue to audition to be my sexual partner. That's what it says outside of marriage. Right now, I currently find you attractive. I currently give myself to you in this way. You may may continue to audition to be my sexual partner. That's what it says outside of marriage. And when the audition's over and you're cast aside, The tearing of the soul is excruciating. What's the third thing that happens when you separate sex from marriage? Immaturity, quite frankly, immaturity. Relationships based on convenience do not call us up to maturity, and we do not become mothers and fathers spiritually or biologically. As soon as either party finds the relationship inconvenient, which it will become inconvenient at some point, one of them bails, or they could bail. But relationships based on an eternal covenant calls us to a profound maturity, fully human existence. What we've been talking about this whole series, what does it mean to become fully human? We can't become fully human until we are taking up responsibility and laying down our life. There's no other way. In order for the marriage to work, we must develop virtues of selfless love and we must take the other desires we have and take it behind the woodshed and beat it with an ugly stick the desires uh, to sleep with many women, the desire to sleep with many, whatever the desires might be that get in the way of that marriage, we are called, even though society wouldn't have it this way, to take those desires and kill them and take other desires and nurture them and fan them into flame. Separating sex from marriage keeps us from taking up the dignifying responsibility that is our birthright. Perhaps Samuel James said it best. Unmooring sexuality, he says, unmooring sexuality from the home, from marriage, and from religion has benefited nobody more than lecherous, grasping men. Separating sex, unmooring sexuality from the home, from marriage, and from religion has benefited nobody more than lecherous, grasping men. I was especially troubled by Wendell Berry's description of modern life. Wendell Berry says this, he's talking about the social impact of just sexual liberation. It has filled the country with sexual self-consciousness, uncertainty, and fear. Women, though they may dress as if the sexual millennium has arrived, hurry along our city streets and public corridors with their eyes averted, like hunted animals. Eye contact, Wendell Berry says, once the very signature of our humanity has become a danger. Danger. The meeting ground between men and women, which ought to be safeguarded by trust, has become a place of suspicion, competition, and violence. Sex inside marriage, it's like laying your life down to tend a garden, to tend vines, to make something fruitful that's a life-giving source to the world. Sex outside of marriage is like becoming a locust that descends on that vine, that descends on that orchard, and eats all of its fruit. It's, it's destructive, it's selfish. So that's why Jesus is taking away our excuses for sexual exploitation. He's taking away all of our excuses. Hey, I've got a legal certificate to divorce my wife. What's the problem? The Bible says. Oh, we, we love each other. Who needs a piece of paper? Or you know what? That, I, maybe I have a too idealistic view of like the perfect Christian guy. He's never coming along. I might as well date this guy. The best I can do. Jesus is calling us to wake up, to become fully human, to lay aside our excuses. But we need more than just prohibitions. We need more than warnings. We need healing. We need healing and life. All of us come with our own heartache and our own history this morning, and we need Jesus's life, not just his words. I'm gonna reflect on the sexuality of Jesus just for a moment. I, especially I'm thinking of you who are, you're following Jesus and you're like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because you're celibate. You're not, you're not sexually active and you're doing it for the Lord. Here's what Todd Wilson says. He reflects on the, sexual, sacri- uh, the, the sacrificial sexuality of Jesus. The sacrificial sexuality of Jesus in his book, Mere Sexuality. Todd Wilson says, Jesus was a lifelong celibate. Jesus was a lifelong celibate. The son of God never had sex. He never enjoyed the thrill of romance. He never knew the rush or comfort of intimate sexual touch, nor did he ever experience the intimate caress of another human being. He never had the opportunity to build a life together in marriage with someone. He never knew what it was like to enjoy lifelong marital companionship in that way. Jesus was celibate and Jesus was chased, And then Wilson quotes from Hebrews 4 about how Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but as one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He himself suffered when he was tempted. We think maybe it was easy for Jesus to say no to sexual temptation. It was hard for Jesus. It was suffering for Jesus. The only person who knows how hard temptation is is the one who says no to it. And Jesus said no to it until his death. And you know why he did that? Because Jesus loves us. The cross was truly more than Jesus's chasteness, but it was not less. He was pursuing a bride, the bride of Christ. He was laying his life down because he came to marry and wash a bride with a sexual past. That's us. That's the church. It's men and women. Guys, I know it's weird to think of yourselves as part of the bride. You are. Shocking rabbinic language. Okay? Jesus came to wash us and cleanse us and marry himself to us and fill us with his life and and remove all of the toxic dead parts of us and fill us with his spirit so that we could be who we were called to be in Christ. He came to marry us. Ephesians 5 says uh, that he, uh, he loves the church and gave himself to her to wash her and sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He didn't just want to win us, he wanted to wash us. To heal any broken heart and make us whole. He doesn't divorce us and cast us aside. Hey, certificate, you're not good enough for me. He calls us to fidelity to him, our groom. And this morning... Anyone can do just that. You can confess your sins maybe for the first time and ask Jesus for his forgiveness and his life and his spirit and he'll unite himself with you. He'll make you whole. He'll fill you with his spirit and shine his healing light on the darkness inside. He'll do it. Jesus offers us healing from our sexual sin. Is there a step that we need to take? Is there an unhealthy relationship that includes objectification or exploitation. It might be time to break that off, even this morning. Are you in a coasting relationship that's headed in a sexual direction but not a marriage direction? Men, if you're in that relationship, you either need to get out or you need to call that relationship to marriage. You need to talk to the woman that you're in a relationship with and say, I feel called to lay my life down for you and with you. Do you want to take that journey with me, or you need to get out of that relationship if you're not willing to lead and have that conversation? Woman, if you're in that relationship, any woman here in a relationship that's not heading towards marriage, but it's basically heading towards sex or sexual activity, get out of the relationship for your life, for your healing. Do it for the Lord. The way we carry out our sexuality will impact everyone around us. Private sexual behavior ultimately has a public sexual cost or benefit. The impact we have from following Jesus in our sexuality will outlast us. It'll outlast our life. It'll outlast our death. The impact we have on the world through our sexual choices will have an impact for life-giving, or life-taking. Jesus is calling us to be life-givers through him. Our sexuality might be a bonfire that burns hot, but the presence of God is a consuming fire that calls all of us. It burns deeper still than our sexuality, and this is the table. This is the fire that we need to gather around as the people of God, all of us with our sexual histories, all of us with our sexual suffering and and sacrificial life, come around the table of the Lord Jesus to receive healing and forgiveness and life. Come to support your brothers and sisters in their journey. To put your arm around them and say, you're part of the family, you're not left out, you're not cast aside. To share your own story. Most of all, to center around the presence of Christ, to look to him, Our reading from 1 Corinthians says, the body is made for the Lord. The body is made for the Lord. And those who hope in the resurrection will come to this fire, come to this table, and wait for the resurrection when our deepest longings, which can never be satisfied fully from a sexual experience, our deepest longings wait for the resurrection of Jesus. I'll leave you with a quote uh, from the young man I mentioned before. I asked him for his testimony, and one of the ways he ended it was this. He said, God, the great surgeon, doesn't desire my spiritual death, but rather my life in Christ. So for my own good, he's going to cut out what's dead and toxic and poisonous to my soul, my lust. And it's undoubtedly going to be a painful procedure, but I need only to place my trust in the surgeon to discover that for everything toxic he removes, I can claim a newfound victory and freedom in him through grace. Let's pray together. Lord, it's been a tough conversation. Thank you that you lead the way in your teaching and in your life. Thank you that you laid yourself down for us. I pray now, Lord, that we would come to you to receive everything you have to give us. Let us learn to trust you at a deeper level with our sexuality this morning. We pray that you would bring healing, forgiveness, and life in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.